Welcome. This is the Lady Leadership Podcast. Sam's goal is clear, helping as many women as she can meet their full potential in business and in life. Hi, this is Sam McIntyre, and in this season of the Lady Leadership Podcast, I'm going to be talking to you about how to get the most out of your career, whether you have your own business, whether you work in corporate, or whether you're just starting out, maybe you're finishing uni. So, joining me, and I look forward to sharing all my tips and hints on how to fast track your career. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Lady Leadership Podcast. Super excited to be interviewing Lani Keneally. Now, Lani is a senior officer in the Royal Australian Air Force, human resource professional who's an innovative, passionate, technical gender expert, practitioner and change advocate focused on delivering outcomes and leading cultural reform in large organisations that enhance women's equality and empowerment. Perfect for this show, Lani. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here, Sam. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So I saw you on LinkedIn and um, have stalked you. So this has been a couple of months in the making. And, uh, yeah, we've got there, got there. Now you're based in New York at the moment? That's correct. Yeah, working for UN Women Headquarters in New York. That's exciting. Tell, I mean, exciting and interesting because of sort of COVID, et cetera. Tell me about how that's going at the moment. And the work that yeah. you're doing. Okay. Um, so I started over here in January last year. So um, I was in New York for approximately eight weeks and then have been in lockdown ever since. So um, so I started my position in January um, 2020 with UN Women, which was really getting my dream job, like fascinating. Yeah. Um, to have to work in that organisation. But sadly, due to COVID, um, the UN... Um, did a, everybody needs to work from home order. Um, so from March last year, I've actually been working from home. Um, so I've become quite the expert at Zoom and MS Teams and this kind of virtual, this virtual environment. But um, New York itself is fantastic to live in, um, even though we have gone through that COVID, um, you know, really serious kind of COVID yeah. impact last year. It was an opportunity to kind of explore without all the tourists, which if I had to, you know, find some sunshine in the whole experience that was probably it uh in terms of the job i'm actually um seconded to un women by the australian defense force so so what that means is that the australian defense force actually um provides my position to un women and pays for the entire thing so it's like just a regular posting for me to come across here and um it's really really valuable for un women because they do not have any other military expertise on their staff so i'm the only military person that works within un women so in terms of what i can provide for un women and ergo what the australian defense force provides for un women is um, that opportunity for them to have someone on their staff who can really engage with the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, who are the UN entity that looks at, um, you know, or who manages uh, operations on the ground um, where peacekeeping operations are happening. And within that um, peacekeeping context, within the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, there's a lot of work going on to increase the participation of women 
on the ground and in those peacekeeping operations. So I really um, um, promote and advocate for the increased participation of women on those operations. And um, along with that, I also, you know, obviously contribute to UN Women's kind of programming and policy development, particularly where there's a an element around security sector reform in um, conflict countries, um, transitional, you know, countries where there's transitions happening and um, post-conflict as well as um, and one of the key things I do is manage the delivery of the female military officers course, which is a 10-day residential course that you and women uh, run. And it's really uh, designed to provide women um, who often report that they um, don't have access to training and uh, opportunities that allow them to deploy on peacekeeping operations. So this course was really developed to help empower these women. Um, it's a global course. Um, we normally run them about uh, four to five times a year physically in person. Yep. Um, since COVID, we've had to kind of pivot and turn that into a virtual course. But uh, basically, it's uh, each course has about 30, 30 to 35 women. And we, um, yeah, like I said, we kind of teach them about, you know, empowering. We teach empowerment. We talk about what it's like on a peacekeeping operation, you know, what the um, their expectations should be and, you know, how, how to kind of negotiate um, negotiate the operation, the security aspects. And then it really has a strong focus on responding to, uh, identifying and responding to conflict-related sexual and gender-based violence, which we recognise is a really significant issue in uh, many of the countries where um, the peacekeeping operations work and um, is certainly obviously has a very huge impact on the um the um, lives of women and girls and men and boys um, in those environments. So it's, um, and of course, it contributes to the overall strategy of increasing women's participation in peacekeeping. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a real kind of quick summary of my job here in uh, working for UN Women. Um, of course, it's, I also do a lot of representational um, kind of work. I um, sit on a lot of panels. I provide when there's a discussion around security sector reform and uh, anything to do with the military, then I tend to be the person that represents um, the UN women's side in um, talking about that when it's appropriate at my level, of course. Yeah. There's a lot in that, Lani. <laughs> I know. It is a lot. It sounds a lot, but it's... Um, <laughs> I've got about a hundred questions just off the back of that one statement. Yeah, for sure. Go for it. Um, let, let's start then. Let's kind of head back a little bit. And if you just kind of lead me up to this point and talk me through a little bit more about your career and how you got, got to this place. Okay, sure. So, um, well, I've been in the Air Force, uh, coming up 30 years. Um, well, in fact, 30 years. I have actually been in the Air Force for 30 years. So in that 30 years, I've um, I've discharged once. So I'll get to that. So what I'll do, okay. I'll, I'll talk about I joined the Air Force in 1990, um, yeah. straight, out, straight out of school. Oh, that, um, I mean, I, I left VCA in, I was in VCA 89. So was that the same for you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um I so I joined joined the Air Force. Um, I actually joined as a communications operator originally. So, in now the just, Air Force, just talk me through what was the reason to choose the Air Force. 
Okay, that's a very good question. Um, and I have reflected on this over the years. Um, I guess for me, I grew up in country Tasmania. So I grew uh-huh. up in northwest Tasmania in a little town called Forest and had a very fabulous childhood. Um, but there wasn't a lot to do there. So I actually played a lot of sports uh, and things like that. Um, I had six brothers and sisters oh, and I was wow. the youngest. Youngest, um, So I was the youngest of seven children. Um, and you're, re- you're resilient then. Yeah, very resilient. Yes, yes. So I did, you know, I grew up, I'm so disappointed that AFL women's wasn't around when I was a child because I had four brothers and I honestly spent so much of my childhood, um, you know, taking pack marks or trying to take pack marks with my brothers and yeah. uh, and things like that. So, um, but yeah, I am very resilient. Um, played a lot of sport, played a lot of hockey. Um, and five of my brothers and sisters actually had joined the military at some point. Um, and I think, you know, on reflection, um, a lot of it had to do with my mum, who sadly passed away um, when I was about 19. But, you know, I don't think I realised it at the time, but she she was definitely the first feminist I ever met Yeah, because she just encouraged all of us. Um, but I can really only talk about from my perspective because, you know, I, I was a child, I was only really a teenager, I was only really interested in myself. But um, she really kind of encouraged encouraged me to kind of look beyond, you know, my, my home kind of my hometown and my home home area and you know get excited about the prospects of travel and what opportunities you know moving away from home might provide me mm. um, university wasn't really something that um, at the time that our family was really kind of you know able to really afford or wasn't something yeah. that we really aimed for at that point so the air force seemed like a really great kind of adventure for me um so i joined it was very very tricky like as in was wasn't tricky to join because i kind of ticked all the boxes i was young i was fit i was healthy and you know i had family support so um i joined as initially as a troop so in the air force or in the military you have like um your troops which yeah. are your non officers and you have your officers so I where, was joined it, where was it based where did you have to go I had to go to Adelaide so okay. to recruit recruit training in Adelaide so I joined as a comsop did three months of um, basic recruit training which was a uh, total shock to the system but loved it physical? now very physical yeah yeah very physical um which was fine for me but then but there was also the other side which was you know just basically being super, super organised and, um, and you know, ironing. And back then there were no mobile phones or anything like that. So it took me four weeks to be able to call my parents because you used to have to line up for the phone book, uh, sorry, pardon me, for the phone box to call home. And I never had my stuff in a pile enough to be able to spend the time in the line to call my parents. <laughs> so it took me a while to kind of get all that stuff sorted. But once I, once I managed that, um, it was, it's been on the up and up. And I think one of the best things that uh, like from recruits uh, all the way through is that, you know, I've made lifelong friends. Yeah. Like my roommate from recruits, we're still really good friends. In fact, I'm friends with all, well, there was four of us in the room, we're still all, you know, in touch. And that's been the case for any kind of subsequent training or, you know, area of I've been, like I've, you know, developed these lifelong friendships. At, um, the, at that time, wh- how many, and, uh, you know, is this conscious or not conscious as well? So you've grown up with brothers and sisters and, you know, that thought of we're kind of all equal, I I suppose, you know, how many men versus women were in that group? And did you even notice? 
I did notice. Um, I did notice there were very few women. I can't couldn't can't remember off the top of my head exactly how many there would have been, but I'm going to estimate there was probably about forty people in my group, and there was probably about seven women, seven yeah. eight women yeah. at most. Yeah, so it was really noticeable. And I think for me, what also was noticeable was the kind of the age kind of you know I was at the very um lowest you know, right. 17 18 year olds the youngest that you can join and there were people at the time who were kind of in their kind of 30s wow you know, okay that That's were mainly the males and I really you know that I will say that you know there were some you know you know experiences there that um you know sort of made you realize that you're you were in that minority group of, right. of women yep. um but yeah, so that was that was probably my first kind of experience with uh, recognizing uh, or being being in that minority group and sort of seeing that those those kind of things play out. I yeah. don't think I really, I didn't really understand the concepts of you know had, gender diversity. Yeah, had your siblings talked to you about being you know in the air force or the military? Had they given you kind of their views or had you had yeah, those? Yes, yes, they had, but they kept it all really positive, I guess. Yeah. Like it was, yeah, um, you know, encouraging and yeah. and and whatnot, um, as opposed to sort of, you know, issuing warnings or anything like that. Yeah, not that, sure. not that, that was yeah. necessary, but yeah, no, it was all it was all pretty positive. Um, you know, oh. mainly it was about you know keep your head down and you'll get through the training. And once yeah. you get through the training, you know, and that's the case. Once you get through that initial training, which everyone seems to be quite terrified about, it's it's a terrific kind of environment and a great job. So it's yeah. yeah. So it's kind of, you kind of put to the test. How many weeks is it? Um, that initial training was twelve weeks. Yeah. yeah. 12 weeks so you know in in that you're doing all yeah like you mentioned like all your your physical activity lots of marching very it was very physical you know weapons um you go out and spend some time in the bush that type of stuff it's um yeah do you you think your kind of childhood and growing up in that town set you up for that for sort of from a kind of resilience uh being in the being in the countryside that type of thing yeah i think so yeah yeah definitely i um I, I didn't struggle with that that side of the house. Like it was, um, yeah, it was yeah. a pretty natural environment for me. Yeah. yeah. It's it's funny because at a similar time I was, you know, at university studying computer science, um, which was very heavily male-dominated. Oh, but, yeah. yeah, and but, um, you know, my grandfather who had actually been um, served two seasons sort of in Papua New Guinea in the war, um in the army had suggested that I get into IT and I was sort of seven, I was 17 when I joined uni and um, I can't, I actually can't tell you the numbers of men to women. I just can't even sort of remember. I, there was a couple of women that I hung around with and, you know, a couple of guys and that's all I remember. Do you know what I mean? But it's subsequently, you know, through my career, I've really come to understand sort of the numbers and understand, you know, the sort of diversity challenges in that space. And so, yeah, I was just really curious. Did it stand out to you at the time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it didn't. I think a bit like yourself. I think you're kind of in it, and you just you know put your head down, and try to get through it. Yeah, yeah. Um. But yeah, when you look back, and this is something that I've definitely done in my career. When I look back, I can kind of just see it everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think that's the experience of a lot of my friends as well. 
um, you know, when we talk about some of the, you know, issues around gender diversity and women's um, experiences, a lot of it is, you know, kind of a retrospective in some respects, like, you know, go, oh, do you remember this? Or, you know, this was what it was like. But at the time, yeah, you're just getting, getting through it. Yeah, and I, I mean, still to you know, still to this day, I'm in plenty of meetings and in plenty of forums where you're the sole kind of woman, um, you know. So we're still sort of living the dream, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. That's definitely been my experience. Like I deployed to the Middle East in the at the end of 2019 as a gender advisor. Uh, into Baghdad and um, there were lots of meetings where I was the only woman. In fact, there was a very funny meeting where um, actually it was a, a quite a senior um, planning meeting and um, I had a speaking role and I walked into the conference room and they set up the big conference room and everyone has a name tag and I walked around the table twice looking for my name tag and it wasn't there and I found my seat in the back corner along the wall with my name tag on it. But I did recognise that there were people that actually had a seat at the table who didn't have a speaking role. I was the only woman in the room and, yeah, like I said, I was a gender advisor. So when it came to my turn to speak, I was really cranky. I was internalised, oh, very, yeah. very cranky yeah. that this had happened. So when it became my turn to speak, I actually stood up, picked up my chair and carried my chair to the table, sat it down, said my bit, uh, answered any questions and then I finished I picked up my chair and went back and sat back in the corner just to make the point that you know it was you know I should have had a seat at the table it took a lot of courage to do that but it, it, I think by that time you know being the only woman in that room again and at, most importantly being the gender advisor and you know having that should um, you know should where I should have had that opportunity to be at the table and, and provide my inputs, I was still kind of marginalised in the corner as uh, as that woman and that gender advisor. So that was really, I think that by that time I was just like, no, this this has to change. I need to make a bit of a point here, and um, yeah, it felt good. Yeah, and I mean that's difficult. That kind of piece around sort of always fighting. I I remember um, I was doing some work in India. And um, I was at a, you know, event with a couple of hundred people and realised that the only other women in the room were the waiting staff apart from me. (laughs) 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 And, you know, and I was the only white woman in the room as well. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's difficult isn't it tricky it's it's tricky space and it it does take um does take some courage i think at times to to kind of stand up and make sure that you're seen but um yeah you know and it really takes strong leadership to in any organization i think to create that permissive environment for women to be visible and to be seen and um that's to me is like when i have a leader who does that i you know it's it's really recognizable to me yeah yeah so fill me in then from, you know, the sort of 1990 joining the um, Air Force to kind of, you know, how you how did you move from, how, how did you then start to think, okay, this is the space that I want to work in? Sure. So from, well, I guess from 1990 to 2000, I just did a whole pile of different kind of jobs which was fabulous um 2001 I commissioned so I became an officer in 2001 and um again did it did a number of postings and then in 2012 um you may recall like there was a um an incident at ADFA the Skype incident happened you've probably heard about that um I won't go into the details of what it was but basically there was an incident that happened in the um at the Australian Defence Force Academy which 
you know, subsequently I'd, led to the yep. Broderick review. Yep. Um, so the then Sex Discrimination Commissioner Elizabeth Broderick did a review into the treatment of women in the Australian Defence Force. And it was at that point um, each of the services, you know, ended up with this kind of um, review that they had to implement the, um, the recommendations of. And um, I was put into the diversity and inclusion team. And then as from a result of working in that team, then um, she moved on, the boss moved on, and I took over being in charge of that team for a uh, period of time. And then um, somebody can I, else took- Can I just ask, how tough was that? Oh, yeah, so it was tough. It was tough. I think um, that initial uh, workforce backlash um, to the findings of the Broderick Review, um, you know, I guess you've worked in lots of organisations, you know, anytime there's sort of any sort of change or reform reform program, people can take it. Some people really embrace it and some people just kind of really close up and some people become very vocal anti-change. And um, so it, it did, it did present a lot of challenges. Um, It, it certainly, um, you know, has, took time to get things done because even within our own organisation with strong leadership, you know, we still had to kind of work through at that practitioner kind of operational level, work through your colleagues and, you know, kind of. Yeah. I I always... Yeah, I always say you can only make change within the constraints of the organisation and within the constraints of what those leaders actually want to change. Does that make sense? Oh, exactly, exactly. So, you know, and you become very good at changing the message or delivering the news or kind of massaging what it is you want to achieve depending yeah. on the person that you're speaking to. So it was very it was very challenging. Um, but post that diversity and inclusion job, then um, I spoke to my then um, senior boss and I said, look, I think Air Force could do with their own gender programs just for women, like their women's program team. And he liked that idea. And um, so I got to be in charge of Air Force gender programs for for a period of time. And it was in that, um, when I was in that role that I became the first gender advisor to our chief of Air Force, which was fantastic. I was the first I was the first gender advisor in the Australian Defence Force in terms of being an advisor to our any chiefs. And um, so quite progressive from our Air Force leadership at the time. And just, and remind, just remind me the year, the, what what year that was then? Oh, you're testing me now. I think it was about 2015. Yep. Yep. So I took on that role in about 2015. And, um, and I had that role as a gender advisor for for quite a while for a couple of years and it was really terrific because the um the chief actually put me uh, or put the gender advice position as part of his um chief of air force advisory committee so his you know senior decision making committee so which is you know full of very senior um senior air force uh, individuals and and me as the gender advisor so you know there was a big rank differentiation there how, how, many, it, how many women in that group then at the time, there was two other women, I believe. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, um, so s- small representation of women. Um, but you know, one thing we find is, you know, well, one thing that I really think about is, you know, the critical mass. I think anytime we can get kind of any sort of critical mass around the table, which sometimes is just more than one woman, yeah. um, is is a real winner. Um, but for, for me, that kind of um, putting me in that position or providing that opportunity for the gender advisor was a real positive step forward for Air Force just to say, look, I'm taking this seriously. Mm. Um, 
you know, and obviously there's lots of things that they would talk about where someone with my experience or background, I, you know, I didn't necessarily have the skills. So I, I would only really kind of get involved when I could see a real gender perspective or something that I could influence and to, um, you know, take forward or, you know, um, from a, from a gender perspective, but, you know, they're, they're, like we know, there are lots of areas that are under development anywhere um, that should always have that gender lens. So it was just good to be able to be there, put a gender lens over it. And if there was something that um, needed to be said from a gender perspective, then I was there and I had the, had the floor and I was able to contribute at, at that level, which was fantastic. Um, so, so, but when I was um, in charge of gender programs, it was probably if I had someone ask me what was my favourite posting in Air Force, apart from working for UN Women in New York, um, it was when I was in charge of the gender programs because what I really had there is um, my direct boss was um, really uh, open to ideas. He was, um, you know, kind of. Um, challenged me to think about things outside the box. And when I was in that job, I, I, um, I developed a, a couple of programs, but one I'm really proud of is um, it's called Flight Camp. At the time it was called Flight Camp for Young Women. Yeah. At the, now, now it still exists. It's called Aviation Camps for Women. But basically um, I developed two programs, one for women um, who would consider a career in aviation and one for women who would career in, uh, consider a career in kind of the technical trades mm-hmm. and um, developed this developed this program over a week for each. And basically it was to bring young women onto an Air Force base and not give them lectures, not, you know, sit them in a classroom, but actually a really experiential learning program because we had um, – had done some research previously through Defence Force recruiting, which um, certainly fed into the fact that young women um, often couldn't see themselves doing those roles. They, um, we certainly learned that they prefer to speak to women who are in the military and doing doing roles, yeah. so that they can really get that kind of, um, you know, straight from the horse's mouth, if you like, experience. Yeah. Um, that kind and, of you can't. You know, you can't see what you can't see. Can't see. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. We say that all the time. And and definitely things like the, you know, one of the big things that comes up well used to come up a lot was the the physical side of things. Oh, I don't know if I could pass the physical fitness test. So we used to put everyone through the recruitment phys- physical fitness test, which was a beat test, and um they all passed all the time. But you know, I'm a really a, I'm, I'm yeah. a really bad runner, Lani. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pretty it's a pretty low bar. So I think you know, I'm just yeah, a yeah. runner. I'm I'm a good swimmer. I'm good at other things. Just running. I've got I'm, I'm 173 centimeters. I'm tall. I can't run for shit. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> yeah, I'm so bad. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. That's why my worst. To- that's my worst. I think I've got good strength. I I ride horses actually so I've oh, got wow. I've yeah. got good strength but yeah no don't get me to run <laughs> yeah you, so you, you're a perfect example you'd be one of those people that go oh, I could never do that and then you do it and you're like oh that wasn't so bad so so it was really um these these camps were really really terrific but what what they really um you know, besides that and that opportunity to work with the youth and, you know, see all these excited young women, um, you know, in some case, some some of the camps we actually took them flying, you know, they got to fly in a little nice. the yeah. there and, you know, things like that. So What sort of really, planes? Um, they were flying, well, when they got to do a little bit of flying, they were in the PC-9s, which is like the roulettes, the Air Force roulette planes. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. They've been replaced now, those aircraft, but... Um, 
we also, you know, took them on a C-17 flight, you know, the big C-17, yeah. um, uh, Herc, Herc flight. Um, so they, they definitely had lots of hands-on experience. But what it really did from a workforce point of view was provide this cohort of women and I had a very I had a really awesome um, flight sergeant working for me at the time who was, um, I kind of set her up as a mentor for these young women. And so she would uh, keep in touch with them. And as they went through the recruiting process, we would find if they hit a barrier. Because, you know, like organisations like the military and others, like, you know, when we're going through these kind of reform programs, we realise that there are a lot of systemic biases that exist um, that, you know, impact women that, um, you know, you might not even be aware of until it, or they might not even be aware of until it's pointed out. And um, we had, we had these, we now had this cohort of women um, that we could kind of follow through this process. And when someone got bounced for whatever reason at whatever level, at whatever stage of the recruitment process, we could actually kind of examine what, what it was that, you know, bounced them. And then there were a few times where we were able to kind of, you know, um, put in an intervention, for example, there was a test, there was a psychological psychological test which women were performing much more poorly on than men and historically had done. So we put in, initially we put in like a waiver so that women, if they failed that test to become, this is to become a pilot, if they failed that particular test and only that test, we would still progress them to the next step to see how they went. And over time we then changed that test away from males as well and realised that that test wasn't. Yeah, yeah, wasn't achieving anything. But, yeah. you know, prior to that, it had been one of those kind of filters where we were probably losing some really great candidates. That's yeah. just one example. And, you know, there were lots of other things around, you know, um, we were we were running these camps to try and inspire young women who hadn't necessarily considered the Air Force or aviation as a career. But then when we got them into that stage of the recruiting process and they were being um, interviewed, they couldn't because they hadn't wanted to be a pilot since they were four, then their motivation was questioned. So, you know, we had to work through. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to work through a lot of those kind of, um, yeah, you know, unintentional biases, but they were definitely there um, within the system. So we've seen some real improvement in those kind of numbers, which is fantastic. Yeah, and I think it's kind of something that, um, you know, I've had a long kind of corporate career and you see those biases in corporate and just, you know, you might find that there's just two men interviewing a woman or three men interviewing a woman or the only people making a decision are men and you don't have women actually involved. I just know myself as a leader, every time I've been in a leadership role, I've been able to hire, promote, support more women just by having that different lens. So, yeah. Yeah. But I really, like, I really like that kind of fact-based, you know, analysis of, yeah. How did you, how did you sort of recruit um, women and girls into the program in the start? Yeah, we, um, we advertised that. So we just kind of developed a really, you know, great flyer and we used the um, Defence has a work experience um, section. Like so they actually run Defence work experience. So this was an Air Force program, but we kind of just used them to distribute to the schools network. You go, um, you're going back to the schools, yeah, starting back. Going back to the schools yeah. and, you know, like um, aviation clubs, like flying schools as well. So not just like actual school schools, but, you know, schools where um, – 
you know, young women might be doing flying training and, and the cadets, of course, was a big part of it as well, um, although they already had that kind of experience. So we didn't tend to to promote it too, too highly there. Um, and we, uh, we within that kind of um, advertising we actually did say that you needed a letter from your school and you needed to be you needed to be studying the subjects that could actually lead you to a career in the military so we really wanted to uh, initially we were targeting that kind of you know year 10 to year 12 kind of age group then subsequent to that we expanded it to go out to age 24 you know to get women that are young right okay like yeah so we kind of expanded the program recognizing yeah. that um you know there's lots of lots of women that would be interested in in, in uh, aviation career beyond those those early years um you know so initially we had a lot of young women who were interested in a career through adfa which was fantastic so i always made sure that i took a adfa cadet with me yeah right <laughs> so because you know recognizing again that they're young women and they don't want to talk to, to old me they want to chat to to someone who's living that experience that they want to have at the time and I think that was really really important um and you know I had a pilot on my team who was fantastic and she would you know she was really great at kind of you know gearing up the girls the women and and um talking to them about how to kind of enter a room and do all this kind of stuff it was really it was a really empowering thing and um it's wonderful that we have um quite a number of those young women now are in the military you know and Mm. and succeeding in whatever careers they're they're doing and um when I was actually in fact when I was on my flight back from my Middle East deployment a young woman came up and spoke to me we're just waiting to catch our flight back and um I didn't recognise her, but she came up and said, you know, Lani, and I'm like, yes. And she goes, oh, I was on flight camp, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, so it's just, it's really, you know, and I know we're talking ones and twos here, but, you know, when when you're trying to increase women's representation, particularly in those non-feminised roles, ones and twos really matter. Yeah, I mean, that's where it starts, doesn't it? Yeah, it really yeah. does. And yeah. um, it's great to see. And, you know, and what I really love about it is um, also that there's just these networks out there now. There's little Facebook groups and there's, you know, the, there's women that end up at ADFA together because, and but they were on flight camp. So you're already starting to develop these kind of friendships and networks. And that's such an important part of being, you know, you know, and you would probably understand this um, based on your background, such an important part of, you know, managing your work and and having that kind of network to be able to reach back into and either talk about a challenge at work or look I've got to go away have you got any suggestions about what I do with kids or whatever it might be it's that strength within that network um, is so important and I definitely see that playing out here in the um, in the UN with the women you know there's some really strong networks um, for the women who are deploying on peacekeeping and and whatnot um, because that's you know they're still very much in the minority and they do lean on each other yeah, I definitely agree with that. You know, I think it's very much you you bring women, more women behind you, they start to bring women behind them. It's then about, you know, creating those groups, creating those networks, creating those support environments. So you, you kind of not that sort of sole person anymore, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, so you're also the chair of the Women's Military Network as well. Is that right? I, I am, yeah. So I took over as the chair of the... Um, women's military network here in new york last year 
um, yep. which has been, been really interesting because it's been uh, virtual, obviously, ever since I took over. <laughs> um, so there are a lot of women in that network that I've never met in person, but um, it's fantastic. Like uh, it's a fantastic network and it's, it's very much a global network because um, the membership uh, is from women who are either working in the permanent missions here in New York. So Australia obviously has a permanent mission with two military staff. One of them is a woman, so she's part of our network. And that's the same for many of the other countries that are represented here at the UN. Um, and then, of course, the women, military, uniformed women and police, military women and police who are working in the Department of Peacekeeping Operations also form part of that network. And the, the basis of the network when it was started was to really talk about you know, how we can get after some of the issues or some of the barriers that uh, impact women's participation in peacekeeping operations. Um, particularly powerful because we recognise that um, most of the issue, or a lot of the issues around getting more women on peacekeeping operations really reside within, um, you know, national military structures. So if they don't have women in their army or their navy or their air force, they can't actually deploy them. Mm. So... Um, so since I've been the chair of the network um, over the last kind of uh, 12 months, I've really sort of advocated to take the network um, and turn it into a little bit more of an external facing network as well. So we have our internal discussions, but I've also um, opened it up that we can invite external people from the community here in New York, um, majority of the males that, um, you know, can, can learn from what the network is doing and I invite guest speakers along to kind of talk about some of the issues that we can get after in terms of how to increase women's participation or, or particularly around what some of the barriers are and, and then we talk about sort of solutions and things like that. So it's um, it's really it's really fantastic. Um, I am trying to organise our very first physical catch-up in June, so we'll see how we go with COVID, but most people are getting vaccinated now, so I'm hoping that we get that chance to um to meet in person because it is challenging hosting a network discussion virtually <laughs> when you yeah. meet people physically but um it's, it's important yeah particularly yeah. like passionate you know subject like this is that you know people are in this network because they're passionate about this so yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um, so just following off on your last question, so post being that general advisor for the Chief of Air Force, then I took over as um, managing the Department of Defence's implementation of Australia's National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security. Yeah. So, um, so I did that for a couple of years, which led me to, um, and I deployed after that as a general advisor, as I've mentioned before, it led me to this position here in UN Women New York. So that, that kind of work in that diversity space and particularly the women, peace and security roles really set me up um, to come here into this job in uh, at UN Women and um, contribute um, to the work that happen, that happens here. So it's it's been a really terrific path and, like, I love it. I love the opportunity to try and um, work on programs, work on policy that you can actually see make a difference. Yeah, make and change. I, I think make change and I think working within that diversity and gender space in um, in Air Force and in the broader ADF really, um, you know, when you when you get small wins, it just inspires you to go further and further and try to really, um, you know, challenge, challenge the status quo where you can and where it's appropriate to really um, improve the lives of uh, the experiences of women who are serving, but, you know, and th those that will serve in the future. 
And um, definitely that's UN Women's role obviously is about empowering women and girls and, you know, eliminating all forms of, you know, violence against women. So taking taking that kind of experience and those those wins and um, that, that lens I've had the opportunity to, to apply to my own organisation and then bring it into this UN Women's space and mind blown like that the work that they're doing across the globe, you know, with civil society and women's groups, but also at the various, very highest levels advocating for change and bringing member states along is um, is wonderful and it's um you know it's very much a learning curve for me as well like I'm very comfortable in my space when I'm providing the military advice but when when I'm sort of on the fringes or I'm having the opportunity to kind of sit in and other policy discussions and and see how some of the other things or the other areas within you and women are working it's it's amazing to to kind of you know broaden my scope and my understanding and um it's it's uh yeah I'm in awe of the work that they do and um their passion it's fantastic Fantastic. And I have to say, you know, and I say this all the time, like it is such a pleasure to go to work, even if it's virtual, and just be surrounded by people that are on board with gender equality. Yeah. And, and, and not having to walk into the room and, you know, take all the, the jives about being the gender advisor and then having to explain what the gender advisor does and, you know, and whatnot. So it's actually really nice to be in that environment for a while where you kind of got this like minded discussion. Yeah. And you can brainstorm a little bit more outside the box. Fantastic. It's hard to change people's mindset who are not open to change it is it is I think um you know it's hard to teach you know like you (laughs) it's much hard it's much easier when people are more you know kind of understand that there is a problem to solve does that make sense It, it is it is much easier and I think you know it kind of goes back to one of my very first points is you know I think one of the skills that I've developed is being able to change change the discussion, change the narrative to to suit the the context, the audience, yeah, yeah, and to bring people along. Um, and you know, the, the amount of times that you get asked, well, you know, why why do we need to do this? What difference will it make? What's going to be the effect? What's going to be the operational effect if we get more women? You know, and it's it, at the very core of it, we're talking about fifty one percent of the population. So you know, we're getting the talent. That's what we're after. And yeah. beyond that, we, we're looking to provide women opportunity for employment and, you know, we want to have better decision makers on the ground and we want our teams to reflect the communities that we're out there to serve. But at the very crux of it, if you, you know, you need to be able to understand that, you know, 50% of the population does not have all the talent. <laughs> the, other, the rest of us can contribute something and when we get to the cream of the crop at the very top, we get the best team. So, you know, why yeah. wouldn't you want to pursue, you know. I used um, to say it's it's going to be an equal world when mediocre women are leading large organisations. Because <laughs> at <laughs> the moment so it's the, the top of the top of the top, you know, are the only ones kind of who, you know, and they've had to work bloody darn hard to get themselves there you know through all of that yeah yeah and you know what is really disheartening sometimes is how visible when a when a when a woman who has worked so hard to get to the top and you know some one thing might happen and suddenly it's so visible and you know where so many mediocre men you know do make poor decisions and dumb stuff and no one ever reports it so that's why we need a critical mass of women at the top. Yeah, absolutely. It needs to be, be the norm. I'm in complete agreement. So let, let's just finish up. What would you recommend for corporate organisations at the moment? How do, yeah, they, how do they start to embark on this path so there's a bit more um, balance? 
so to speak? Yeah, that's a really good question. Look, I think um, there's probably a couple of things. The first one would be if you're going to embark on it, believe in it. Yeah. You know, so one of the things that I really uh, despise, I think, is just lip service. Yeah. I think, you know, and I, I for, for a number of reasons I despise it, but, you know, at the very core of it, I hate what kind of what it can do to to women or to minority groups when they think that there is something that's positive that's going to happen. But when, you know, when you peel back the layers, it is just becomes um you realise it's just talk. You're just letting people down. Yeah. So if you want to do something, commit to it. Um, so um, and beyond that, you know, things like understand your baseline. So you know, we talk about this all the time. And the from a UN perspective, the Secretary General's really made a, a very strong point about the need to have data so that you can actually track progress. So you know, understand your baseline, understand where you want to get to, and understand where you want to get there. Mm. Build a really Build, build the narrative and yeah. be a visible leader. Second to that, allocate resources. Nothing says you're committed to, to an issue um, like actually allocating money and people to it. Yeah. Um, so don't don't make sorting out the gender problem the problem of the the women in the organisation oh. as a as a you know a lunchtime meeting. Actually, put someone in charge, someone who's got the skills um, and the experience in charge, but make sure that that person understands that they need to speak to the to the you know the women in their workforce and also to the other minorities in their workforce to understand their lived experience. So make sure it's a person that understands how that kind of change management works. So let them have a team, and um, you know hold people visibly accountable for poor behaviour. I think when when you see a leader or an organisation that says that behaviour is not going to be tolerated, um, that's a very positive place to start. You know, when when you know when there's a blind eye turned to poor behaviour, or if it's just excused, you know, boys will be boys, or that's yeah. how it's always been. It'll take time, but just give it time. No, you need to. You know, uh-huh. if, you, if you're committed to changing and reforming your organisation and, and being a values-based organisation, it's really important, I think, to have visible accountability um, and consequences for people who, um, you know, commit atrocities or do poor behaviour. Trust think, is probably a pretty good word. But. Yeah, no, no, that's, I mean, but that's a really important thing, what you said, value-based organisation. So rather than coming from that power leadership perspective, coming from that power, from that values-based leadership is super important. Uh, yeah, 100%, you know, and, um, and you know, measure, what gets measured gets done, but don't become an organisation that just Ticks boxes. Um, ex- exists to measure. Yeah, yeah. You know, over the years, I have seen some very talented, talented um, accounting, if you like, of um, measurements. Yeah. You know, just just to get a, a traffic light from green to yellow or yellow. Oh, sorry, from red to yellow or yellow to green. When really, when again, when you peel it back, nothing's changed. So don't let that be the the outcome you're after. <laughs> the actual change. Do those kind of pulse surveys. You know continue to reach back in and talk to you, talk to your workforce um, and, um, and yeah, resource. That's, that's probably my, my advice. I can talk about this stuff forever. To be oh, honest, I, I, I have to actually, I, I, play, I love these conversations. Oh, same. I have to actually play this back and re-listen to this because um, 
I can't actually summarize what you just said, but everything you just said was incredible. And there's nothing that annoys me more when companies report on diversity and they include the top two, three levels. And we all know that it's not the top two, three levels that are running that organization. It's the top level and the top level are men. And then the people that own the P&L are all men and the people in support roles tend to be women. And there's nothing that irks me more than playing the numbers that way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. All right. (laughs) Lani, thank you so much for your time. I just I'm blown away with the work that you're doing. I can't imagine what your days are like. And um yeah, just thank you so much for everything that you're doing um to help women in the military and the um with the UN. It's so exciting and um yeah, just thank you so much for taking time out of your day early in New York to join this podcast and um I really appreciate it and this is this is the space that I want to you know take my career and um you know start to do some of the work that you've done with the military in uh corporate Australia so uh, yeah I just I just can't think of a better purpose honestly you know than to help women around you so yeah thank you Thank you, Sam. It's been my pleasure, and um, I, I agree with you. Like it is, it is a rewarding. It's challenging, but it's a rewarding role. Like when you are that you're helping, helping your women. And I'll finish with a, a quote that a, um, a friend of mine said once, which I just use all the time: is, you know, as women, it's just so important for us to empower other women and not pull the ladder up behind us. And oh, I think that's, no. put, that's put a great, great piece yeah. of advice. Yeah. yeah, put the ladder Thank down. You. Put the hand down. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much, Lani. Thank you.